The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 19th chapter. When Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon the other in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was daily in the temple, teaching. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on to his words. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You Lutherans are out of touch. I know. What else is new? Are these not the very words that we have been hearing time and time again for years and all the more in recent memory? If not about us as Lutherans in particular, then at the very least about us as Christians writ large. That we are out of touch with the times, that we don't understand the world as it is, that we do not understand science and progress and all of those other things that make the current world what it is and against which we have decided to set ourselves. And so what is always the underwritten subtext, get with the times, figure it out. Change what you do, what you believe, so that you may be in line with the world as it is, and so that we can finally be done of all of this nagging that we have to hear from you. Although I do imagine you have not heard these words quite so often coming to you from the pulpit. But let me assure you that you heard correctly, and I will say it again. You Lutherans are out of touch. You see, you are out of touch precisely because you have been spoiled. You have been spoiled with good and wholesome doctrine. You have had long time to sit at the feet of teachers who have taught you from the very beginning what a great and glorious and comfortable thing it is to confess that we are saved by grace through faith for the sake of Christ alone. You have been taught that this most excellent doctrine of the scriptures is the great truth of God to which you should cling in all times of your anxiety and despair. 
You have been taught what a great privilege it is to know that you are saved, not because of your own doings, but because of what Christ has, been done, has done for you. To know that you are righteous, not because of your own works, but because of the works of Christ. He who fulfilled the law on your behalf, he whose death sanctified your death, and whose rising secured for you your own resurrection and secured an eternal inheritance with him in the kingdom of his Father, wherein you shall live with him forever in righteousness and innocence and blessedness. You have been taught to treasure these things. You have been taught to love them. You have been taught to hold it in your heart as the most prized possession. You see it as something that is great and awe-inspiring and wonderful, a source of joy and comfort in all times. And I thank God that you have been so taught. For indeed, this doctrine is everything that I have said. But I would invite you just for a moment, just for a brief period of time, to think not like a Lutheran, to see this as the world sees it. Let me give you perhaps an example that you could relate to. Say you wanted to run in a race. You prepared for it. You trained for it. You stayed away from all of those foods that wouldn't do good for your waistline and your heart. You devoted yourselves to all of the training and discipline that was necessary. You got up before the crack of dawn. You came home bruised and tired and sweaty. And then the day of the race came. And all of your training paid off. You were the first off of the starting line, and as you are closing in on the finish line, you see another competitor, one who is fat and unprepared, one who isn't even wearing tennis shoes, one who isn't even the slightest bit prepared for this labor, one who is sitting there, sitting in a cart, clearly by no means exerted, and yet there he is, seated upon that cart, holding the trophy that you longed to obtain. All of the effort that you put in has been stolen from you and given to another. And you ask the judge, how can this be? How is this man entitled to this trophy? And the judge looks at you and says, he simply asked me for it, and so I gave it to him. Or another example, maybe one a little closer to home. You have your eye upon a new position at your workplace, and you strive to obtain it. You make sure that every form that you turn in is flawless. You put in all the overtime that you can. You work the weekends and the holidays that your boss wants you to. You strive to obtain all of the necessary certifications and proper documentation that would mark you as one who is totally suited for this new position and for all of the wonderful benefits that it should bring for you. And then at last, the time comes for promotions to be handed out 
and you see again that it goes to someone else. One who frequently was late to the punch card. One who checked out early. One who napped at his desk. One who frequently turned in subpar materials to the boss. And yet there he is, with the shiny new corner office that you were longing for. And when you go to your boss, rightly outraged that this has happened, he turns to you and says, he is my friend, and he asked for this, and so I gave it to him. You have a sense now of how the world sees what we so treasure. The world does not see salvation in Christ alone as something to be rejoiced in, but rather something to be scorned as unfair something to be scorned as nepotism of the highest order, God giving out his gifts capriciously, not giving it to those people who have striven to do what is right, not those people who have done the most for their fellow man, not those who have labored and struggled, not those who by the sweat of their brow, by the blood of their wounds, and by all of their efforts have attained to glory, but instead God gives it to people who have done nothing. You get a sense of how the world sees it. And for our purposes today, you get a sense of how many of the Christians in Rome saw it. Remember that the church in Rome was not like ours today, largely made up of Gentiles, but rather the chief backbone of the church in Rome were those Jews who lived in that city in exile. They were people who did the difficult work of striving to maintain their identity in a foreign land that was often hostile to them. They strove as best they could in a world that did not make it easy for them to abide by the law of Moses as they had been taught, to as best as they possibly could do what Moses had commanded them to do, to strive for the righteousness and holiness which the law demanded of them. They had done all of this, and even when the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ came to them, still they continued in their labor to live as they believed that they rightly should have. Meanwhile, there's all these others, all these Gentiles. A fair few of them, I imagine, who not too long ago would have been amongst the great crowd of Romans sneering at these Jews and their weird superstitious customs, pagans who went to the feasts while the Jews were observing the required fasts, pagans who laughed at the continence of the Jews while they indulged in orgies and feasts and all the other revelry that their world would offer them. But now here they are, sitting right beside them in the same buildings. The same words of scripture that once they reviled now on their lips going with the Jews up to that altar to receive the body and blood of Christ as though nothing had ever happened, as though they would not have been reviling this whole affair mere minutes ago. And instead, for those Jewish Christians, then they must look and they must see the writing on the wall. 
that increasingly this is how it is going to be, that the mission of Paul has not borne the same fruit among the Jews in Rome as it has borne among the Christians, and that day by day the ranks of the Gentiles in that church swell. More and more of them are brought to faith, and more and more these people enter the church, having a whole history of sin and unbelief, and now here they are, and they cannot even abide by the most basic rules of Moses that these Jewish Christians have been observing their whole lives. And outside are their families. Their families who have not believed in Jesus, but who continue to observe these laws as they were handed down to them with all of their faith and zeal devoted to that. And I imagine that for them, that must have been an incredibly embittering experience. To see these people who have done nothing, these people who have not exerted the slightest labor, welcomed to the table of the Lord, given that position of honor, while all of their labors and all of their travails seem to have merited them nothing special. It is precisely this situation that moved St. Paul and all of his pastoral heart to write to them. For he, of all people, should know what it is to be zealful for the law, but not according to knowledge. Indeed, he brags elsewhere that he put more labor into his work as a Jew than indeed anyone else in his cohort could ever claim. And yet in this time, Paul does not seek to somehow cover over the offense. Rather, he lets it stand. They were right. And indeed, the world today is right. The doctrine that Christ alone saves, that our works have nothing to contribute, that we are saved solely according to faith, solely by the grace of God who wills salvation where and when it pleases him, solely because of his own mercy and not because of our own contribution, this truly is offensive, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. And many people, when they meet it, will trip upon this rock. They, like people past and present and surely in the future, shall look upon this great teaching of ours, not with the joy and contentment that it has brought us, but with anger and vexation. They shall see it as unfair. They shall see it as deplorable, despicable, something to be relegated into the darkest corners of humanity and forgotten. But for us, it will continue to be that cornerstone upon which our salvation has been built and the foundation upon which our salvation is secure. For indeed, that is why God laid Christ the stumbling stone in our midst in the first place. Not chiefly so that we should fall upon him, but that seeing him and seeing the wisdom of God in choosing him to be this cornerstone of our salvation, we should continue to build upon what has been laid out for us. 
that we should recognize Christ as the only sure foundation of our salvation, the only hope and comfort that we have when it comes finally to our knowledge that the righteousness pursued by the law is doomed to fail. For if we pursue righteousness according to the law, there is no room for error. There must be perfection in all things, from the first day which we were conceived in the wombs of our mothers until the very day when our final breath exits us, there should be perfection in all of our doings. And wherever there is a mistake, it is cause to destroy the whole thing. The foundation is either secure or it is not. And if the foundation is anything other than the cornerstone which God has laid in Christ Jesus, then we can be certain that it is an edifice that is doomed to fall. It shall not stand when the day of judgment comes. It shall not remain upright when the winds blow against it. But like that house that is built upon the sand, it shall tumble down and destroy all those who have sought refuge in it. But the house of God that is built upon Christ, whose bricks are the words of the prophets and the apostles, and whose denizens are the people called to be saints according to the Spirit of God, that house shall endure judgment. Indeed, in that house judgment has already passed. And the winds of the world, the destruction that is to come, shall not touch all those who find refuge in this wholesome place that God has built. For that reason, then, let us not be turned in the way of the world. But again, let us be the Lutherans that we were born and taught to be. Find joy in the knowledge that Christ is your cornerstone, in the knowledge that he has taken you into the end, that he has given you that proverbial trophy, that proverbial corner office of which I spoke, and indeed something greater than any worldly treasure or promotion could ever offer you, he has brought you directly to the throne of God. He has seated you in the spot of a prince. He has bestowed upon you an honor that is not even given to the angels, the honor of being called a child of the Heavenly Father, one born of the Father's will in holy baptism, and one who has been prepared for an inheritance due to a child of God. Let this be our comfort. Let this be our strength. But let us also have the same heart that St. Paul had. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I admit, sometimes it is very hard to think this way. As I said, the world doesn't have much love for us. The world doesn't care much for what we would say. Indeed, there are a great many people who would see us quieted by any means necessary. And yet we must remember the words of our Lord who taught us to pray for those who persecute us, to bless those who seek to do us harm, to offer our cheeks to those who would strike us, to give our cloaks to those who would demand it of us, to go two miles with those who would demand a mile, to in all things be willing to suffer loss that by our loss those who harm us might come to know Christ.
Indeed, as Paul came to know Christ, as he first and foremost was one who reviled, one who was at enmity with God, one who sought to destroy the church, and yet received the grace of God all the more. So to then let us remember that we were once enemies of God, and indeed that we struggle with all the same sinful temptations that those outside of us struggle with. And let us earnestly desire their salvation. Let us pray that it may be accomplished. Let us pray that God grant us a spirit of boldness to proclaim Christ the stumbling stone, Christ the author and perfecter of our salvation, Christ who has bled and died not simply for us in this building, but indeed for all people on this earth. Christ who desires that even his enemies should be saved. That even those who revile and slander and those who pierced and crucified him would receive his forgiveness. Let us then seek to call them to this forgiveness. For in Christ we have found the end of the law for righteousness for us who believe. And having found that end in that peace, having known that great joy which we have been taught to treasure in our hearts, let us call others to that joy as well. Let us proclaim it with boldness, so that one day we may receive them in this place. As fellow redeemed saints of God, as fellow sinners loved by Christ, and as those who too have had the record of their transgressions blotted out, that we may receive the righteousness of faith and the promise of Christ forevermore. May God grant all of these things to us. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of Jesus, our only hope in this life and the next. Amen.